Welcome, Sky community. Welcome back to another episode of Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, and you are going to be so glad you showed up today because I have Dr. Corin Min with me today, and she is my new favorite person, my my newest new favorite person that I met at the Menopause Society meeting. Welcome, Dr. Min. Thank you for having me. And likewise, I um, <laughs> loved meeting you at the Menopause Society meeting and love that we have a mission of really providing evidence-based information to all these women out there because they're not getting it from their OBGYNs, that's for sure. No, absolutely not. So you, just to give a little background, you have over 20 years of experience in helping women in perimenopause and menopause, and you also have a very unique story that makes this so personal. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I am, yeah, sports certified OBGYN um, and menopause um, society certified menopause practitioner. And, um, you know, really it's, I always, I'm very, I'm an open book with my patients. And in 2001, when I was a second year OBGYN resident, um, six weeks after my mom suddenly died of ovarian cancer with no family history, no gym, no known genetic mutations, I, at 28, was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. Um, I was a very young, 28, newly married to my college sweetheart, thinking about maybe starting a family, um, you know, doing the crazy hours of OBGYN residency um, and grieving the loss of my my mom. She was only 54. Mm -hmm. Um, And you and I both know that our training had really, there was no, you know, we did not learn anything about menopause or premature menopause, really. Um, and certainly no one knew what to do with anybody with breast cancer having those things. Um, but my treatments um, obviously put me through temporary menopause at first from chemotherapy and then subsequently from some of the medications I took for my cancer. Um, and now, knock on wood, I'm 23 years later. So yes, I'm doing well. The breast cancer is behind me. But it's an important thing because this is what informed me as a physician. And it's taken a long time because I was not educated in how to manage my own, you know, um, collateral damage of cancer treatment, the particularly the premature menopause. Yeah. Um, and um, and basically it really informed me as a physician. And so over the years, as I moved into private practice, doing general OBGYN and then tailoring it to GYN only, then to finally tailoring it to really a specialty in perimenopause, menopause, and breast cancer survivorship, mm-hmm. um, I had to self-educate through the Menopause Society, through yeah. ISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, um, that now I'm finally at a place where I know how to help myself and others. But I just realized there's such incredible suffering out there by yes. so many women. And so now this is my new kind of passion. Um, and what I really feel like is my life's work to, um, educate not only doctors, um, well patients, but, but doctors that they need to do better yeah. by their women. Um, and the oncologists need to do better by their women, because we are, we have a, a growing army of survivors out there. Um, and it's going to continue to grow as we get better and better treatments and we're diagnosing people earlier and earlier. We're also finding more and more mutation carriers who are having prophylactic, you know, oophorectomies to lower their risks of ovarian cancer. So we're, right. we're, we've got a growing body of people who are going to need help managing menopause. And right. um, so it's my mission to help them now. I, I think that that's phenomenal and what a mission <laughs> to have. 
so I've got a lot of thoughts about what you just said. <laughs> first, the first thing that I want to mention is you're absolutely right that there are so many women who are suffering out there, you know, and they may go years, multiple providers trying to get some help. And it's through going to social media, going to YouTube, doing all the research themselves. And finally, they land themselves on menopause.org and put in their zip code and find them somebody in their area. That's how a lot of people are finding me now. Yes. So I mean, it's huge and you're right. We have to do better. And um, the the recent article that came out by the Menopause Society where they had done a study looking at the actually polling the different um, the different residency directors about their menopause curriculum, right? And over 70% of those who actually had a curriculum, it was two or fewer lectures a year. Yeah. So yeah. your OBGYN might have had eight <laughs> hours of lecture in menopause therapy. And also to note that many of them, the lectures that they had may not have actually been what the data actually tells us because people have to understand that when the WHI study was dropped, you know, in the early 2000s, they, it, it changed the face of how we dealt with menopause, unfortunately. And it was a tragic problem because while yeah. the WHI is not all bad, we have lots of information we got from it. It was the misinterpretation and the misinformation and the media messaging. Yes. And it, it affected my generation. I was a resident then. And yeah. then anybody who was trained then and is now teaching the younger generation, they're giving them old information. And unless yeah. you take the time to be like, wait, 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 it's a lot more nuanced. We've got really clear guidelines. What's happening is younger doctors are being fed old misinformation. And so right. this cycle is perpetuating and it's tragic. Yes. And, and this uh, leads to women on corners at the, at the local um, hormone therapy clinic, right? Being touted yes. that testosterone is the cure-all. Getting yes. mistreated. Well, and not that testosterone is bad. We love testosterone right. in a way, but testosterone palate therapy, unregulated, unnecessarily you know, high doses of crazy supplements and all right. sorts of concoctions that are compounded. Not that compounding is all bad. No, of course not. But like people are, there's a menopause care vacuum. All right. And there was yeah. a journal article print like with that title. And mm -hmm. what happens is in that care vacuum, what comes in business interests come in yes. and women yes. get, get, get unfortunately preyed upon. Yes. Um, they go to their OBGYN yes. and their OBGYN is like, yeah, deal with it. It's menopause or here's some Prozac. Yeah. Then they're like, oh, well then they go and find unscrupulous providers who are then offering them stuff that is not evidence-based, but mm -hmm. the truth's in the middle. We've got good science and good data. And we have it not only for the average woman, but for even the woman who's high risk for breast cancer, even the woman who has had breast cancer. So yes, yes. We're going to get into all that. that. Yeah. We're going to get into all that. So my other thought about your um, introductory story was how did that impact you as an OBGYN resident diagnosed with breast cancer and going through premature menopause and not learning in your own training how to treat that like did you feel like what the heck is going on here honestly when I look back it was literally a decade of just muddling through you and I both know OBGYN is such a demanding physically and time demanding residency yeah. it's actually cruel and it's it's really not a healthy <laughs> thing um okay. but you know I've got great memories yes of like all of what I learned and stuff but 
I was just trying to survive as a resident right. and just get through in the middle of also doing chemotherapy and grieving the loss of my mother. So honestly, right. it's just a blur. And so I came out on the other end of it, just being relieved I got through it. And right. I did not address my premature menopause symptoms properly. Oh. I wasn't really doing the lifestyle things I needed to do because mm-hmm. honestly, I was just trying to survive. And then mm-hmm. I was fortunate after cancer to get pregnant, have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to point out to anybody listening that I actually lived the positive trial. So the positive trial was released by American uh, American Society for Clinical Oncology um, at their meeting last year, which is the study that shows that women who are estrogen receptor positive, who have breast cancer, who'd like to um, pursue pregnancy can safely pause any adjuvant endocrine therapy for up to two years, mm-hmm. come off their tamoxifen aromatase inhibitor, get pregnant, have their baby, breastfeed, do what they need to do, then go back on. And so I did that 23 years ago. Um, and so I bring that up because I, I was then thrown into motherhood, right? Right. Busyness that came with that. And right. once I had that pregnancy healthy, went back on hormone treatment. So was plunged into menopause again. So as you can imagine, I was literally just trying to get by. Yeah. So it really wasn't until I was really, really suffering with finally having surgical menopause when we finally decided to remove my ovaries because I right. learned I carry the BRCA2 mutation. Mm. Um, and so I went through immediate surgical menopause and overnight my life really changed from a hormonal standpoint. And it was finally at that point, it was early, I was probably around 34 that I found the menopause society got certified and it was like, all right, something needs to change here. But wow. yeah, what a journey. So, so let's talk about that first. What do you want to start with? BRCA testing or testing? So a couple of the myths and things that I think are, these are really practical points. I'd love to get a point across today. So one in four women qualify or one in four people, I should say, qualify for genetic screening for hereditary cancer. And a lot of times when I ask patients family history, they're like, yeah, I don't have any significant family history. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to ask a little bit more. I'm like, so no breast, no ovarian, no colon. No, no, no. Oh yeah. And then they start telling me a few things and then they realize that it's not just their mom's side. It's also their dad's side. And we need to go beyond just moms Mm. and dads, go to the grandparents and, you know, cousins and stuff and get a full, you know, history. And when you really dig down, it's really interesting. 25% of people will qualify for some sort of genetic testing. That's Mm -hmm. number one, but less than I think it's like 10 or 20% will actually be offered it or if they are offered it, they don't follow through. Mm-hmm. So that's one important thing. So your and your family history changes. Remember, you know, you might find out new information or mom or brother or something, you know, so right. always be asking about that. So in my case, we didn't have any significant family history. Um, they ran the BRCA one and two gene panel. And at that time, that was all they were doing. There was not staying my mutate. I was negative and I, and it never sat well with me because I was 28 with breast cancer. My mom was 54 when she died of a very, right. So I proceeded with my cancer treatment subsequently down the road, made a decision personally to have my ovaries removed because of, but not because of a mutation carrier risk. Okay. 
lo and behold, 2013 comes about and I'm, I'm transitioning to a private practice where I'm only doing GYN. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of upping my education, getting involved with the menopause study. And I realized prior to 2013, standard testing by Myriad and all the big labs did not include the large rearrangement of the BRCA gene. So if you or your family members, like your mom or your grandma, had the BRCA testing before 2013, it did not include the large rearrangement of the gene. I demanded retesting, which my oncologist was like, ah, you don't need that. I'm like, yeah, I think I do. And guess what? I carry BRCA2 mutation. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people who had tested earlier who you know, really need update testing, but it goes more than that. Around 2013 is when we started to not only include the large rearrangement of the gene, in BRCA, but we also did other panel testing. So for other genes, ATN, check mutation, POB2, I mean, the list goes on. And this is why you need to get update panel testing. So it's not just BRCA gene. It's not just, oh, I did a fun 23andMe and I'm fine. Those, those commercial kind of more fun tests include sometimes the most um, common mutations, but they tend to not include a full panel. Um, and they also often ignore things like Lynch syndrome, which is associated with colon cancer, and there's other things out there. So um, one big message is it's super important to know kind of your hereditary risk um, and also to know your risk of breast, ovarian cancer um, beyond just your hereditary risk, um, you know, lifestyle and you know, reproductive history and all of that. And just most, most people aren't really aware of that. Um, so that's one important thing. And then the other thing along the kind of genetic lines is that what we're seeing, and I'm sure you see, is there's more and more women who are getting proper testing, thank goodness, and, and finding out they carry, say, BRCA or one or two or another mutation, and they make a decision that they want to lower their ovarian cancer risk, which is high with these genes, by having an oophorectomy, removal of both of their ovaries. <laughs> and some of them may also have a prophylactic mastectomy. Some might, they may say, I've got going to do enhanced surveillance for my breast tissue or my breast cancer risk. Um, but we know we don't have great surveillance for mon, you know, for screening tests for ovarian cancer. Yeah. So what I'm seeing is a huge amount of women getting their ovaries removed prophylactically or ovaries removed for other reasons that are of course not genetically related, other benign gynecologic reasons that may be very valid, but then they're left with premature surgical menopause and they are getting no pre-op counseling about what to do and completely mismanaged and don't realize the severe health risks that come along with this premature surgical menopause. So I think that's another big topic that we should talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Premature surgical menopause is one of the, actually I had a patient who was prematurely surgically menopausal um, who had, I had delivered her babies. She had moved out of state she is reaching out to me because we were longtime friends and she is the whole reason that I got certified in menopause medicine because I didn't know how to help her, but I knew she wasn't being adequately treated and I knew she needed higher doses of therapy. Yeah. Well, and, and the ACOG, you know, our own professional society, and this is the problem is that we have evidence-based guidelines of what we should do. And we, women are trusting their OBGYNs to be giving them the right information, mm-hmm. but any of them, if they are being properly given hormone replacement therapy, which let's be clear, if you have menopause prior to the age of 40, 45, maybe, but definitely under 40, um, 
you need true replacement doses of these hormones. It's not just let's lowest you, effective dose. Yeah, the lowest. That's not actually that's medical negligence because. Right. To be clear, if you have premature surgical menopause, you are at significantly increased risk of cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality, yes. dementia, osteoporosis, hip fracture, sexual dysfunction, depression, anxiety, you name it. And it's we really need full replacement dose. So it might be two milligrams versus one milligram of an oral estrogen. Mm -hmm. It might be the higher dose patch. Um, and actually, it may not be birth. It's actually not birth control pills. That's not ideal. It's actually yeah. using hormone therapy. And and also maybe testosterone, um, but it's not happening, even though the guidelines are super, super clear um, and that those hormones should continue up until at least the natural age of menopause. And then you decide if you want to then continue with menopausal hormone therapy going forward, which you should, but yeah. <laughs> we, can continue, we can talk about that separately. But what yeah. was super interesting, I don't know if you saw for our board certification this year, um, I don't know if you did yours yet, but I, I did. did. I did. <laughs> did you read the article, which is a shocking article? It was basically, basically the, it was about the underutilization of hormone therapy for premature surgical menopause. And, and yes. the bottom line was that the average duration was 5.3 months, which is yes. unacceptable. Right. And and it was something like, I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it was like less than 50% of women were even offered it. So to me, that's just completely medical malpractice. And mm -hmm. it went further to even say that those women, barely any of them got bone density testing. Yeah. Very few were getting proper lipid screening panels because they're more at risk. Yeah. And so I'm glad ABOG put it in there to make us read it. But I think you know, we get to choose which articles we read. Probably a lot of the OBGYNs didn't even pick that article to read. Right. It's sad. But right. it's not just sad. It's, it's actually dangerous, right? So, uh, yeah. And so, you know, if people are listening to this, I want you to know two things. If you have your ovaries removed for benign reasons, meaning you don't have active breast cancer, you're doing it prophylactically, to prevent ovarian cancer, you might carry the BRCA mutation um, or for any other reason. In all of those situations, you should be, be given hormones. And the biggest question that comes up is that the doctor meant I carry BRCA gene. And so my doctor says, I can't have hormones. And this is completely wrong. The North American Menopause, now the Menopause Society has a 2016 practice pearl statement on this very clear. And this past year in the cancer journal, there was another article that was published that reviewed all of the data and literature. Bottom line, evidence science facts says BRCA mutation carriers who have intact breasts or not, but who have intact breasts who have gone through an oophorectomy can, can and should take menopausal hormone therapy. It does not further increase risk of breast cancer. And in the article, they cite the misinformation from the WHI has led to this unwarranted wrong extrapolation of the data to apply yes. to these. And it's, this is a growing problem because more and more women are making these decisions. In fact, it's the reason why Monica Molinar, one of the co-CEOs and founders of Alloy started Alloy was because she carries the BRCA2 gene. She mm -hmm. was super well-informed, lived in New York city, was able to you know, make the decision to remove her ovaries to lower her ovarian cancer risk. And she spent right. four years, including seeing doctors 
for pellet therapy, all sorts of crazy stuff until finally she realized like, wait, I just need proper FDA approved estrogen and progesterone and I can feel good, you know? So, you know, so that's really, really important, um, you know, for women to know. And that's something I'm really obviously passionate about. (laughs) Yes. You can't tell from my voice. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that passion. And I think that we have hit on some really important messages here for patients to know that if they're BRC positive, they can and and should use hormone therapy when needed. Um, Premature surgical menopause, we need replacement therapy, not just lowest effective dose. So we've hit on a couple of myths about hormone therapy. Are there any others that you want to address? So I think then it also comes into, we've got a lot of women out there who are perimenopausal um, and are really suffering with symptoms. And when they go to their doctor, I just did a reel about this yesterday and I got over a thousand private comments about what, you know, kind of myths and misinformation their doctors gave them. And they're really suffering with hot flashes, night sweats, maybe joint pain, um, you know, fatigue, insomnia, uh, mood changes, cognitive changes. And they're told, no, you can either have a birth control bill, which is totally can be very helpful. I use it all the time for my patients, but they say that's all, that's the only option. We don't do menopausal hormone therapy until you're a full year without your period. Um, and you don't need vaginal estrogen until you're fully menopausal, you know, so those are, God, no. Vaginal estrogen is every girl's best friend. (laughs) Yeah. So those are huge myths. So menopausal hormone therapy can be given in the perimenopause. Um, we can also, you know, menopausal hormone therapy, you know, a birth control pill is a form of hormone therapy, right? So we can use that. We can use a marine IUD. We can use estrogen. We have tons and tons of choices. So if someone tells you, you have to wait, that's not true. The other big myth I see is that women who have, maybe they don't carry the BRCA gene, but they have just a family history of breast cancer. They have dense breasts. Um, you know, they may have other risk factors that they've been told for breast cancer. So they said, oh, well, because of my family history, because I'm slightly higher risk, um, I've been told I absolutely can't do that. And in fact, that's not true. Um, the menopause society, again, because I always want to reference data. We come with receipts. Um, we we are not just, these are not our opinions, right? They actually have a line, which I think I just read the line on one of my reels, um, that basically says the preponderance of data says that these risk factors don't further increase your risk. Your risk is what it is and you should address that risk and we can do things to lower it. But if you're symptomatic and you'd also like protection from osteoporosis, lowering dementia risk, all of these things, you know, ideally initiating it gives you the most benefit for those um, preventative health things earlier rather than later. Um, There's no reason to any data that shows that it's going to, hormone therapy is going to further increase that risk. Um, so I think that's really important because I think there's a lot of people who think they're not candidates who actually are all Often, the time, all, all the time. time and not just breast cancer. There's a lot of yeah. people who think I mean, breast cancer, family history, I promise we're going to get to the actual breast cancer survivors, but there's also a lot of people out there who say, well, I can't do it because, oh, I'm a smoker or because I, which well, you shouldn't smoke ladies, but it doesn't yeah. mean you can't have menopausal hormone therapy or because I carry, um, like say factor five light and mutation. I have a slightly higher risk of blood clots or my grandpa had a stroke. So I can't have that. Or right. my grandma has, you know, heart disease. So that means I can't. So your family history might inform us. Your family history does is not a contraindication for hormone therapy. And probably you see this a lot this increased risk of blood clots um, is 
a big reason why people think that they can't have it. What I tell those patients is 99% of the time you can't have it, but it's about formulation. So it would be using a transdermal estrogen option versus an oral, maybe avoiding and certainly not having high dose synthetic hormones from a birth control pill, which right. I see for lots of women, but if you're at a higher risk of blood clots or heart disease issues, then in, as you get older, it's better to use a transdermal and right. micronized progesterone has not been shown at all to ever be associated with blood clots and strokes. So there's a huge bunch of these ladies out there who think they absolutely can't have it. Yeah. And that's, that's not true. Right. Um, so I think those are like some big common myths about who can and who can't. And then the, the other group I think is there's a lot of women who are beyond the 10 year window. So, you know, they've been denied access to menopause care. And so now right. they're 10 years and they're like, damn, I missed out. I can't. Yes. And yes. I say, wait, maybe let's yeah. look at benefits and risks. And I think the biggest message there I have is that we want to look at what are your main symptoms. If you're still having persistent symptoms, you can consider it. The risks for most of those women are not really that much higher than if you were in the 10 year window. We just may not get the same degree of benefits on protecting cardiovascular health or lowering dementia risk, but yeah. interesting Dr. Lisa Moscani, who I know we both love and follow, I'm a leading PhD researcher on women's brains, you know, just published a very, very important study showing that even this dementia risk, because there was some noise that if you took menopausal hormone therapy beyond 10 years, um, you initiated it, then you would cause increased risk of dementia. Her most recent data shows that actually that's not even true. We know that if you begin it within the first 10 years, estrogen alone or estrogen with a progestin has a significant lower risk of, of dementia and mm -hmm. But in the over 10 years, if it's estrogen alone, there was no negative effect, maybe a tiny benefit effect. And if it was estrogen or progestin, it might be a slightly negative, you know, kind of um, point towards not, you know, maybe causing more dementia, but very, I mean, these numbers are tiny, small. And so if the overall other benefits in terms of sleep, hot flashes, protecting bones, all this stuff, You've got to weigh those things. So right. it's not across the board. No, it might be lower dose, transdermal, you know, let's talk about it all. So, Agreed. you know, it's that's very personalized, very personalized. And you can still, and, and vaginal estrogen every time, all the time for life. Until you die. Time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so that, that brings us to an important point. So ha visiting with a neighbor, right. And, and, you know, I talk about vaginas all the time. So it comes up, you know, oh, but you know, I can't because of my breast cancer. Well, let's talk about that. You know, stage one resected all these years. She is miserable in menopause and was blown away to learn that she too could use hormone therapy and should be on vaginal estrogen. She's so excited. She's like, I'm going to be slipping dollar bills in your, <laughs> in your mailbox. Yeah. You know, this is oh. huge. It's huge. So let's talk about survivorship. Okay, let's so so there's so many kind of ways we can hit this. So let's talk about the people who've already been through breast cancer and now they're kind of left with this collateral damage. And then I want to give some tips on people who are starting treatment and how they can kind of be proactive because that's something that I wasn't able to do because I didn't have the knowledge, but I've learned right. how 
you know, how can we do that? But so you've already had breast cancer, you've survived, whether it's been only six months, a year, or you're 10 or 20 year survivor, and you've been denied access to help with menopausal symptoms. So let's start. I like to put these in two buckets. One is the sexual and genital urinary syndrome of menopause bucket, because that's, you know, we can treat that in a different way with local vaginal hormones, as well as other things. Um, and then systemic symptoms, which I would refer to as hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, joint pain, brain fog. We're going to talk about that in a separate bucket. So let's talk about the genital urinary. So the GSM symptoms, vaginal estrogen, hear me, is safe for everybody, including all breast cancer survivors. And yes, even if you had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, and yes, even if you're on tamoxifen still, and yes, even if you're on an aromatase inhibitor. So for those of you who have completed treatment and there is no you're not on any medications for your breast cancer, use whatever vaginal hormone product is going to work for you and that works in your lifestyle. All of them are local, not systemically absorbed, safe, FDA approved. They don't need to be compounded. You want them compounded, go for it. It's more expensive, but you know, that's fine. But we've got products. We've got, um, and most of them are bioidentical if that matters to you. Um, I have a little bit of a preference for vaginal estrogen cream. And I also love Invexi and I love Intrarosa. The cream I like, cause it's flexible. You can put it inside, but you can also use it at the um, opening of the vagina where a lot of women have pain with penetration right. um, as well as on the labia and the clitoris. Um, and I tell patients, dip the, ditch the applicator, put it on your finger, stick your finger in your vagina, rub the cream into the vaginal walls. It won't drip out because you've just rubbed it in. And then okay. you can also use it on the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Consistency matters twice a week. You know, you could do a loading dose daily if you want to, or you could just do it like two or three times a week. But the key is consistency and don't give up if it's not immediate in the first two weeks. Give yourself up to 12 weeks. Dr. Rachel Rubin talks about needing 12 weeks to truly transform the microbiome of the vagina as well as heal the tissue. Mm -hmm. Then after that, it's for life, ladies. It's like if you don't use it, it's not going to work. So that's super key. The reason why I also like Invexi is because it's it's a little applicator free, a little um, vaginal estrogen, and it comes in two doses, a four microgram, super low dose, mm -hmm. which I will point out is really nice for those of you who are on an aromatase inhibitor. So mm -hmm. for those women out there who are on estrogen lowering therapy, so you might have had your ovaries removed, be in natural menopause, or... Um, be on Zolodex or medication to lower your Lupron to look lower your hormones. So the aromatase inhibitor is basically making your estrogen levels even lower, like bottoming out, putting them into the basement. So there's, you know, this theoretical concern that you would, could have some systemic absorption of a little bit of that estrogen cream systemically. First of all, the data has never shown that to be an issue and has never shown that to cause an increase in breast cancer deaths at all. And studies have looked at um, serum levels of what's absorbed, and we do not see a rise in serum levels. Sometimes with the vaginal cream, you could see a little bump up in the first couple of weeks because the tissue is so thin and decompromised that you get a little bit more absorption. So if you're using vaginal cream and you're on aromatase inhibitors, use a little less, use it a little bit on the outside, but that's where I do like Invexi because it comes in that little lower dose for micrograms. It keeps it nice and low, but really you shouldn't be afraid if you like the cream to use it or to use Vagifem or use e string. 
We've got lots of papers out on this. Um, I've got a link to it in my bio and we can put it in the page notes. So you can use all, but I'd say with the aromatase inhibitors to make your oncologist happy, just use like the little bit lower mm -hmm. dose. If you're on tamoxifen, it does not matter. You can use whatever you want because tamoxifen works whether your hormones are high or whether your hormones are low. People don't understand tamoxifen does not put you into menopause. Tamoxifen used on its own for premenopausal women who still have lots of estrogen and still get their periods. It is the treatment of choice for lower risk premenopausal women, meaning it doesn't matter what you're doing with your estrogen levels, whether it's systemic estrogen therapy or in your vagina, if you're on tamoxifen, use what you need to treat your vaginal symptoms, right? So I, that's what I tell all my breast cancer survivors. And we have tremendous amount of data, including statements that are produced by the American Society for Clinical Oncology. Their own professional guidelines say, as well as ACOGS and NAMS guidelines say that we can use this. So yeah, stop the fear. And if your oncologist says no, they're telling you wrong information. I'm sorry, they just start. <laughs> um, and then Agree. I, and then I always want women to know it's a trifecta of things. I tell them you need to heal your your the vaginal, vulvar, clitoris, urethra, bladder tissue with vaginal estrogen, and you need to use it for life. You need to always use a vaginal lubricant with any so any sex to decrease friction because if you have discomfort that's a negative biofeedback on your brain right, right. doesn't do much for libido if sex hurts but uh, but a lubricant does not replace vaginal estrogen and if you like a vaginal moisturizer because it makes the tissue feel better it makes you feel more comfortable that's amazing but it doesn't replace vaginal estrogen Agreed. i personally use all three because i find that that that's the trifecta for me mm -hmm. but not one of them replaces the other and the most important one is the vaginal estrogen. So to me, for the survivors out there, that's a no, 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 no brainer. Yeah. What I like to tell patients who are initiating therapy. So you've just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Chemo is either going to about to plunge you into premature menopause, or it already has, or you finish chemo, um, are already in menopause for whatever reason. And you're about to start an aromatase inhibitor. I will promise you it's not that some of you are going to get genitourinary changes. All of you will. And this is not what the oncologists tell you, but frankly, this is what I tell my patients. Be proactive. I think when you get, this is bold, but it's true. When you get your prescription for an aromatase inhibitor, at the same time, they should be giving you a prescription for some sort of vaginal hormone to prevent the inevitable changes. Because I see women who come to me six months later, a year, two, five years later, literally in tears, yeah. their vagina is dry. It's cut. It literally little cuts yeah. in it. Yeah. Their, their marriage is breaking down their partners. Yeah. They're like hiding out from their partner, making excuses of waiting, of course, because we're smart. our brain is smart. We do not want to have painful sex. No. And they feel self-esteem issues. Yeah. It's really not good. And forget the sex part. Maybe they may not be having sex. They have urinary tract infections. They feel uncomfortable right. having urgency, infection. getting up at night to pee. Yes. I had a breast mm -hmm. cancer survivor recently who wound up in the ER getting hospitalized for urosepsis. Yeah, I believe it. And you know, vaginal like, estrogen saves lives. Yeah, it saves lives. So to me, this is just insane. So yeah. it should be proactive. And what they say in ASCO guidelines and NAMS and ACOG, which I don't think it goes far enough, they say, 
you could start with a vaginal moisturizer. And if that doesn't work. Oh, I read that and was like baloney. Come on. That's symptom treatment. And then, (laughs) and I said, you know, and that's okay. It's not, you know, but I said, you have to understand these professional guidelines. They really, they have to be so conservative and they're very vanilla and they're not nuanced and really just enough of the nonsense. Move right to what you need to do. Yes. Yeah, vaginal estrogen is going to preserve the architecture of the vagina. Yes, and beware of laser therapy. So I think that laser therapy is not completely wrong. It can be used. I have actually had a couple of treatments myself a number of years ago. It wasn't bad. It helped temporarily. I'm not here to knock it completely, but I think it's misused and overused in particularly the cancer survivors who are not Mm. taking vaginal estrogen. Their skin is so decompromised and so- Really estrogenized and poorly vascularized. I've seen women get labial burns and really, mm-hmm. really, it, it's not helped them. And they've now out of thousands of dollars when really they should have just been given estrogen. I'm not saying you can't use it in conjunction, but I mm-hmm. find you really need to first be well estrogenized. And if you are, you tend to not need, need that therapy, but it, it could be used, but be really, really careful. Um, yeah. Cancer survivors with that. Um, so that's the genitourinary syndrome yeah. part of it. So then we can go one step further and say, what do we do? How do we manage these breast cancer survivors with their menopause? That's what I think a lot yeah. of them left out of the social media conversation. Yeah. And, you know, Oprah's talking about menopause and all these people, the New York Times and breast cancer survivors were like, well, I can't take any hormones. So we've just told you, you can take vaginal hormones. So right. what do what do we do with these people? So I'm just curious, Carolyn, like, what do you see in your practice? Are you seeing people worried and asking you about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I had, um, I just saw, um, a lovely return patient who's in her sixties yesterday who really challenged me before I was certified in menopause really challenged me. She came to me because she needed help with her genitourinary symptoms she was getting hormone therapy elsewhere. She is on an aromatase inhibitor. Um, she's four or five years out from her breast cancer. And she said, I'm not telling my oncologist because my oncologist will fire me, but I am unwilling to live like this anymore. And so she challenged me and pushed me and, and, you know, is doing well, but, um, yeah, I see it all the time. There's all of this, all of this misinformation out there and they believe that they are not candidates. All right, so, so, so many things. So first of all, if you're in the middle of getting your adjuvant endocrine therapy, it's part of your primary treatment for breast cancer. So let's talk about it in two kinds of ways. You're initially diagnosed with the breast cancer. It is very important that you treat your primary breast cancer. Agreed. It has evolved. It is, you know, it's life savings. We are, we, it, it's amazing. I took adjuvant endocrine therapy with um, tamoxifen. I was on Lupron for a while. I never had to take an aromatase inhibitor, but I have lots of patients who I've helped deal with it. These drugs are, can be life-saving and life-changing, you know, changing, mm-hmm. life-changing for good and bad reasons, but, but they are an important part of treatment. I am not here to get in the way of what an oncologist is going to re- right. recommend, but, but the first thing you need to do is understand there's a lot of options for adjuvant endocrine therapy, including various aromatase inhibitors, with ovarian suppression, if you're still, you know, having menstrual cycles, as well as tamoxifen that can be used in premenopausal women, can also be used in menopausal hormone, uh, in menopausal women. And within those, there's different doses, there's different formulations. Um, and so 
we need to have a personalized approach to the adjuvant endocrine therapy that we're offering women. And what I see a lot is that it's a, it's a very um, algorithmic and one size fits all. The men, they, they, they do their chemo or finish their surgery. All right, next stop is some adjuvant endocrine therapy. Um, this is what you need to do. You need to do aromatase inhibitors for 10 years. You know, that's it. There's no discussion on the nuances. And so what I've been doing with my patients, and I think it's something that they need to demand from their oncologist is, okay, thank you. Can you please tell me what is my benefit of taking these medications at five years, at 10 years? Like what is the survival benefit? Mm-hmm. What's the um, recurrence risk reduction? Um, and, and that's really important. So for instance, I see some patients who are grade one, stage one, lymph node negative, uh, like a four millimeter small invasive thing. And they are on the most extreme option, yes. which is ovarian suppression, aromatase inhibitor. I'm like, did anybody tell you that your absolute benefit, and I'm just throwing this as a, you know, theoretical patient might be, you're getting like a one, you know, you know, one, 2%, you know, you know, risk reduction or 5%. It's, you know, did anybody explain those numbers to you? Yeah. And what they say is no, they said there was a 50% decrease risk of recurrence. And I says, okay, but do you understand what that means? So for instance, if your risk of recurrence is say 10% and we give you adjuvant endocrine therapy and maybe it halves it, that's like, this is just a general thing. So maybe it's like from 10 to 5%. Okay. So you want, that's a 50% reduction. And when you, when patients understand that, they're like, oh, I thought I had a 50% chance of dying of breast cancer. People, they're not explaining right. to them. So then when, we, when I push them a little further and I says, did anybody explain to you that when they give you those numbers that the adjuvant endocrine therapy is lowering your risk, they're talking about all adjuvant endocrine therapy. You know, within that, there's nuances between the different medications. So you can have different options and maybe you might tolerate tamoxifen better. Maybe aromatase inhibitor has maybe a 1% benefit or a 2% benefit for you. Is that 2% benefit worth it for you if you are having these horrible side effects, right? right? So that's number one. When you are making these decisions, you should be fully informed. And for someone who has very advanced disease or a larger burden, those benefits might be bigger. And if you have a lower risk disease, those benefits might be smaller and it needs right. to be individualized, right? So mm-hmm. that's number one. Number two is if you are then pursuing those medications, you need to say to your doctor, okay, you know, I'm going to have hot flashes and night sweats, insomnia, sexual dysfunction, vaginal dryness, joint pain. What are you going to do proactively? When we go in for chemotherapy, we get pre-treated. When I went in for my chemo, they gave me all these drugs and medicine to manage all the side effects. They were super aggressive because they wanted me to be able to deal with my chemo. When women are started on adjuvant endocrine therapy, they are offered zero in the way of of, of ways to support them so that they can be successful on that adjuvant endocrine therapy. And there's, I don't know what the number is, but it's it's a, a shockingly low percentage of women actually successfully complete their adjuvant endocrine treatment as their oncologist has wished them to do. Mm-hmm. And when they tell their oncologist that I don't wanna do this anymore, or I'm gonna refuse this, they think they're gonna be fired. And I'm telling you, I see oncologists firing patients and saying, you know what, if you're not going to do this, then you know what, if you get metastatic disease, don't come crying to me. I mean, that is literally the message instead mm-hmm. saying, all right, how can we do this so that we can find a way to get some benefit and imbalance that, you know? And so 
I feel like that's a huge thing that's not being part of the conversation, right? And um, so that's the first thing that I want those women to know. And that we can, if you've decided, all right, we're going to pursue an aromatase inhibitor and, or I'm going to be on tamoxifen and I'm also already menopausal. There are number one, we've got a position statement from the menopause society of non-hormonal options. So we've got, we do have non-hormonal options for vasomotor symptoms. So you should never just say, I need to suck it up. We can help you with that. And then maybe you'd be able to stay in your hormone therapy. And at the same time, you can use vaginal estrogen. So a non-hormonal option with vaginal estrogen. That's number one. Number two is, and we can talk, if you want, we can talk about those non-hormonal options, but there's a full array of them. They're not perfect. Yeah. And we have a previous episode on that. So you yeah. can so, that. Yeah, they're not perfect, but we can, you yeah. know, we can tweak them. And, 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 and I, I tell patients, listen, I know you don't want to be in another medication, but if it means you're going to sleep and feel better and have more energy right. and all things, right. You know, look at the big picture there. And when they understand that, but then when I say, okay, you've either completed, you know, you've completed your hormone therapy. What does the data tell us? Can you take hormone therapy after you've completed all of your treatments? Right. And they are often told a blanket. No. And it's actually not really even what the data or the science tells us. And in fact, if you actually read the menopause society statement, they have a pretty lengthy paragraph on it. And it's a very conservative paragraph, but they actually say that there is some data that shows that it's not detrimental to when you've completed your primary treatment to use menopause hormone therapy, but it needs to be a nuanced discussion of risks versus benefits. Sure. And and so in the position statement, it has that line. And so what I can tell women is that line is actually backed by science. And we have over 25 studies that have been done on women who have already completed treatment for breast cancer and are looking to treat themselves with menopausal hormone therapy. And of those over 25 studies, all but one shows either no increased risk of recurrence, no increased risk of death, and a number of them show a lower risk of recurrence and a lower risk of death. And all of, and we know that all their symptoms are treated, but from their breast cancer risk, it's actually not dangerous. Now, are mm-hmm. these studies perfect? No. Are some of them small? Yes. Are some of them observational? Yes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are randomized controlled studies. Some of them are not, but we have, we have data. So for an oncologist or an OBGYN to say, no, there's no data that supports that it's safe. It's actually just like, they're not, it's not right. It's like, it's yeah. not true. It's data. So I would direct your listeners and we can make a link to it. There is a beautiful review article that was published in the Cancer Journal in May of 2023 that was authored by Dr. Avram Blooming. He was the guest editor for the Cancer Journal. Um, unfortunately, it is behind a paywall, so you can't get the full print. But if anybody mm-hmm. messages me, I will send it to them um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you the link. Um, and yeah. it's a beautiful review article that that basically explains what all of the studies have shown. And not only are there 25 studies, there's also, I think, 20 review articles that did meta-analysis of those 25 studies. Mm-hmm. And all of them show those positive things that I said, right? And so to me, that's true shared decision-making, informed decision-making, because some women may say, I know the studies aren't perfect, but most of them basically say it's pretty safe. And I'm going to make that decision for myself, right? Versus saying a blanket, no. 
There was one study, the HABITS trial, that showed an increased risk of local recurrence, but no increased risk of death and no increased risk of distant recurrence. And that was shown even on their 10-year follow-up. So, you know, and, and it's because of that HABITS, there's that one HABITS trial, that, and it was published in the oncology journals. So that's the one that all the oncologists cite, but they don't explain the nuances of that study and what it actually showed. And they don't explain that there's actually all these other studies out there. So I think that's the big, that's been the biggest barrier, right? There was a lot yeah. of interest in this. And then when the Women's Health Initiative was released, not only did it pull the plug on accurate information to the average women, it made the breast cancer world really fear it. And so yeah. I think it became just like this big thing. And so, you know, we're starting to talk about it because yeah. we no, I mean, I feel like everybody's going to go back and rewind the last five minutes to hear that again. Like what I have options as a breast cancer survivor. I think this is huge, which yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. And for your knowledge, I could hang out and talk to you forever, but I have to go get my mammogram. I know that's amazing. And so <laughs> we can put some, we'll put some show notes. I'll send you yeah. some things and we'll put some show notes in there and we can always talk more about this. I'm going to have you on. Instagram live and let's like, let's record some more. Cause we've got a lot of good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. This is so fun. Yes, Look at your mammogram girl. <laughs> All right. Bye until next week. Be well. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.